Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Trad Cotter, a microbiologist and mycologist who, along with his wife Olga, owns and operates Mushroom Mountain near Greenville, South Carolina. He is also the author of the book Organic Mushroom Farming and Mice Remediation from Chelsea Green Publishing. In this interview, we sit down and talk about his book, The Science of Microbiology and Mycology, Entrepreneurship, and also touch on the power of mushrooms for remediation. This is, as seems to be the ongoing case, a candid conversation that includes thoughts about why ideas that can change the world should be open source and available to and owned by the people, why treating employees well and paying a good wage for labor matters, why making a difference can be more important than making money. Find out more about Trad and his work at MushroomMountain.com and at his author page at Chelsea Green. You'll find links to both of those, as well as where to order his book, in the show notes. Now then, on to Trad Cotter. I am a microbiologist, a research mycologist, and uh, attended Huntsman University and owned my own business for 20, about maybe 20 years. I've been studying mycology and started out as a commercial grower at, at the age of 20. For the past 20 years, as a young young kid, been collecting laboratory equipment and uh, out in the woods studying fungi, collecting and cloning just about everything I could. How did that interest develop? Was it just encountering mushrooms in the woods as a young man and going from there, or I really didn't know anything about mushrooms in general, other than the common salad bar varieties. In 1994 was when I was hired at the age of 20. And when I was I was hired as a walk-in, as a tour to a mushroom farm, and then after that I was immediately asked by the owner to go out into the woods and start collecting some other varieties to sell to the chefs. And that's when I really became interested in the wild type, mushroom ecology, and also trying to domesticate those. In other words, pick those mushrooms, clone them, and try to cultivate the varieties that no one else was growing at the time. And then that was part of your informal on-the-job education. You say that you also have a background in microbiology from Clemson. Is that at the bachelor's, master's level or? Yeah, BS level. And we've got also was awarded the EPA fellowship award, which gave me the opportunity to work in the laboratories doing research on fungal and bacterial interactions at the university. And also I got sent down to Athens, Georgia to work on silver nanoparticle toxicity on human cells, which when I came back from that, that was just a summer internship. So when I came back from that, I've been applying things that I've learned in the labs over there, mostly bacteriology and human pathology to the fungal research. Most schools are not exposed to mycology that much. So the micro that you do learn in schools, mostly bacteriology, what they basically made me a lab rat in a biofuel research facility, which is great. I'm very passionate about learning more about biofuel and the different research that's going on. My job over there was the fungal expert going back to school at a later age, bringing all my knowledge for isolating and tissue culturing to the university. So we were able to isolate different fungi from different feedstocks for biofuel. But now that I'm done, I'm just, our new laboratory is EPA quality, EPA grade, it's better than it's better than a university lab because it's a clean room. So we can do a lot of things that the university can and the university does things that I can and don't want to do, just like quality control 
analysis experiments. So we just pay them to do that. And we do all the really cool cutting edge research at our facility here. And it's that lack of formal knowledge and training available for mycologists is why I ask some of those questions. From my experiences and a lot of my reading, it's folks who have a background in some form of biology seem to be the professionally trained mycologists, but that there's a large body of amateur citizen scientist mycologists who are out doing the foraging and locating where different mushrooms are, finding a lot of the new species and trading that information through like online forums or contacting people who are known mycologists. And I was interested in knowing a little bit more about that for anybody who might want to go down that formal path. That's a really good question. And I'm happy to be that conduit between formal academia and also citizen science where there is more troops on the ground who are wanting to, without a formal background in education, is the most commonly, the common groups are gardeners, chefs, naturalists, landscape architects, gardeners, permaculturists, homesteaders. These, all these groups need the knowledge, but they, sometimes they feel like they don't have the background to apply and get started. One of the, one of the reasons I partnered up with Chelsea Green for our book is that it's more open source than any other mushroom cultivation guide on the market to date, where it's written and basically condensed and rewarded a lot of the technical data and taken the PhD and turned it into post hole diggers, right? That's what it stands for. And anybody can do a lot of these things in this manual. And I've got a little bit of both. And I tell you, the response has been overwhelming at these conferences. So I really feel like there's a need for the information to be out there and put in a way that's easily digestible. And Chelsea did, I think they did a great job. I wrote it and they did a great job editing it and organizing it in a way that's very smooth, easy to digest, Pandora's box for mushroom cultivation. And that was another reason why I wanted to talk to you is that I have a formal background in education. I'm a graduate student in, in environmental education and resource management right now. And thankfully, I'm on Chelsea Green's mailing list for when interesting sustainability-related books come out in that are at least in some way tangentially related to permaculture. And I happen to have the, a copy of your book. It's an uncorrected proof, so I don't know how much I can refer to it. But what I really liked about what you have here is that it's exactly what I have been looking for as both an educator and someone who's interested in growing mushrooms. Because a lot of my track as an environmental educator is to bring more science into the conversation and more science literacy. And in here, you have a chapter on fungi in the classroom with different tracks that educators can use to introduce children to these ideas. There's a lot of your advanced research techniques for people who want to build a basic laboratory. I actually, based on your home laboratory equipment checklist and info when setting up on a laboratory. I have a friend who's building a laminar flow hood for me right now because he has a background in HVAC and filtering systems. I couldn't have asked for a better book on mushroom research and growing mushrooms and teaching about them than what you've written. And as I say, even though the copy that I have is an uncorrected proof and I don't want to delve too much into it until the final version comes out, There's a ton of useful information here for anybody from a home grower to someone who's a college student who might want to be doing research. 
Yes, and I think the book is what I hope would be inspirational, just as you've read through it, and it charged you up to go ahead and act. And that's one of the ways I describe the book to the author for the media, is that when you read the introduction, how I got started not knowing anything, and then building layers and layers, and that's how the book is written. So anyone who is reading along, it's just uh, it's building these layers just as I have, and they wanted a, a cover read, so it's not a book that you would read a couple chapters and then feel too challenged and stop. And I think the value of the book for for that cover to cover what you get in the end is something to graduate into every few weeks, every few months or years, and you can stop at any level you want. I'm very excited that you were immediately inspired to go out and build the laminar flow hood and get started and that that information is in there. And there's a lot of tricks and things in the books, little skill sets that are taught in at universities, and some are completely not. They're tricks and of the trade. And I would assume that this book went out to a lot of mycologists, professional mycologists, and some of these tricks in here, even the one chapter is worthy of, I would think of just that one chapter alone on advanced techniques is, is worth, worth the cost to them to learn some exciting new techniques that they might apply in their laboratories. So, yeah, it's definitely a to-do action book to get out there and do something for yourself or for your community. That's why I wrote it. And that breadth of information that's in here between the basic information on mushroom cultivation in the beginning and moving through, you also have a lot of nice information about like how to actually make an agar plate. And that's something that I haven't found elsewhere for this type of cultivation, that you can use potatoes to extract a starch to use as a base. Tissue cultivation, spore cultivation, that for someone who wants to go into commercial mushroom production, they have everything they need here to be able to set up their own lab and be growing their own spawn, and then can be trading spawn with other people for things that are unique to their area or interesting for particular techniques. What I tried to do is take the intimidation factor out of starting something new. A lot of people eat mushrooms, they purchase mushrooms, they wish they could grow them. And for someone, when as soon as you get into an area like the basic laboratory techniques, what I tried to do was take out that factor of I can't do it or I don't have any formal training in microbiology. So all the tools that we use, even building your own laminar for on a budget and how to set up and do basic transfers and purchasing materials, making use of locally available materials. And most microbiologists and universities have to purchase and have accounts with biological supply companies. And some of those items are really expensive. I'll be honest that to this day, I don't purchase auger from those sites. I get my own auger. I make my own recipes. I'm an avid cook, so I like to cook for my mushrooms in the lab. I like to see what they like. I keep good records and just basic potatoes and auger from a health food store, mixing those together and just starting. And I think it's that starting that causes anxiety for someone who doesn't want to spend a lot of money, who just wants to try it. And I encourage anyone that there there will be some speed bumps. You might get contamination, but just to keep at it, it's, it is a learned skill. 
But what I try to do is take a lot of that, eliminate a lot of that failure factor in there and just make easy to follow recipes that are tried and true with ordinary kitchen equipment, for instance. I don't know if you noticed or read ahead, but some of the most advanced chapters, even using in some of the professional labs today, require very expensive blenders and equipment. And we're, we're finding these I think stand-in equipment at thrift stores for $1.50 versus $400 for the blenders, things like that. I think repurposing and reusing items that we have that qualify as professional-grade laboratory gear, and that's what I want to do is empower growers and thinkers to try growing mushrooms, isolate new native strains from your area, and add to the body of knowledge to become fluent in basic mycology. So I have to ask, if I walk into your new laboratory, am I likely to find one of those thrift store blenders on the counter? Three of them. I do have my real expensive ones there, and two, one of them I can't find anywhere else. It's a very small metal blender that I use for blending auger plates. And I'm at the point where I'm ready to just somehow craft or build my own and get with a friend or a family member engineer and just build like a couple of these small little blunders. So I would just say, don't be afraid to create your own equipment. And a lot of, I think, innovative scientists and gardeners, you know, anybody in the industry, everybody, if you have that inventive side of your brain where if you can't find it, you make it. And I have tools in the lab, even little picks and things that I can't find on or that they even use. In microbiology, I go to dental sites, I buy dental picks, I find things that I like to use that are specific to my style of culturing. So I have my own little customized little tool set that I use and just, like I said, don't be afraid to find items, make them to make it work. And it, it is a process of what I call desperation sometimes, where if you don't have something, you're going to either find it or create it to make it happen. Just look at the end goal in sight. What do I need to do this or fix this problem here? And that's that survival instinct that I have that kind of keeps me going. Just like that mushroom on the Patri plate, I have to adapt to survive. And I received your book around the time that I was editing an interview with Steve Gabriel from the Cornell Extension Office. And they recently released some material on farming shiitake mushrooms in the woods, and living here in the eastern woodlands here in Pennsylvania, that interview, as I was editing that, I ordered some initial spawn from Field and Forest Products, and then I received your book, and I received a copy of Greg Marley's book, and all of that together really took away a lot of that trepidation that I had up to that point. I've probably spent, until I actually plugged logs one day with that spawn, and then started sprinkling about some Stropharia sawdust spawn in some wood chips. Until I started doing that, I probably spent about two years working up to that point, but feeling a little bit intimidated by all of it. I think that the way I tried to write the book was as if you were in my head, which could be a good or bad place. <laughs> I'm not sure how you'd say it, but it's my method of teaching is very relaxed. There's humor. I'm very curious about the world. I'm an observationist. I spent a lot of time just observing natural cycles and very patient. It's taught me a lot of patience. And I hope that came across in the book to be an easier, more digestible read where it would take that anxiety out. So it's not like you're talking to a professor or you have that kind of approachability where I 
pretty much full disclosure and total transparency. And I think it comes across in the book that you can trust. You know, what I'm saying is those 22 years of experience in the opening chapters, I think just asking people to ease into it. Don't overextend yourself and fail and then curl back up into your shell and think that you can't do it. But there are training wheels, mushrooms to start with. And once your training wheels are off, that's it's a sense of freedom and flexibility that you, know, you can grow anything on, on anything anywhere in the planet. And that is a sense of empowerment that I want every reader to have once they get to the middle and towards the end of the book. So it reads more like a novel. And that readability is certainly a nice part of this book and your material is it's not as dry as some. There were a couple points where I felt that I had to have a passion for this to move through it because of my lack of direct knowledge and not having hands-on experience. But that's where it goes hand in hand with the journey that I'm on, that your work as a companion to what it is that I'm doing and provides answers in lieu of being in a workshop or in a class where I can ask questions directly. Yep. And encouraging those who also read, you're definitely going to excel if you're pairing up external stimulus workshops, traveling. And, and that's how I got my experience. I didn't do all this on my own. I didn't make all this stuff up. A lot of the, a lot of the skills that I have and knowledge that I did based it on a, an existing body of knowledge, but just took it to the 10th degree. And following my colleagists, going to forays, a lot of our friends are mycologists and gardeners. So we have this circle of people who help you build and support your passion, which is an incredible feeling that once if you focus and concentrate on a particular subject, you know, you've got nowhere to go but up with all that support. So I'm hoping like the knowledge here in the book, it really is expanded upon and somewhere in the book, I can't remember where, but I encourage anyone who's experimenting with ideas and suggestions and experimental theoretical research in the manuscript to share it. But don't hang on to it. If it's something proprietary, sure, go ahead and protect it. Share that body of knowledge. Make it public domain so everyone can benefit from that. And that was one of the problems back in the 80s and 90s where a lot of this knowledge was not was kept as trade secrets. There is a little bit of secrecy involved in the mushroom industry from farm to farm. And we have our own little secrets that we have, but <laughs> they're for good reasons to keep them out of the hands until they're ready to be released. But they will, most of these, a lot of these ideas released in the book. I felt like they're too important to hang on to. Some of them were humanitarian based, like the modules talking about Haiti and water filtration. And those are ideas that nobody should patent. Nobody should own those. That should be owned by the people. Nobody should prevent anybody from creating good, high-quality protein food or cleaning water. That shouldn't be an owned intellectual property. You touch on some of the things of interest to me. My first degree, as my listeners have heard many times me say this, my first degree is in computer science. And for many years, I worked in using open-source software. I was a Linux guy for many years. That's how I, when I first started the show, I was using a lot of open source software and other things. And part of the path that myself and some of my team that I'm collecting around me as part of this like permaculture news team process, we're interested in making what we do open source. It's a Creative Commons attribution license so that this information can be shared and people can use it and get down to the work of building a better world and making a difference. 
and what you spoke to about some of the trade secrets, as someone interested in mushrooms, I kept encountering a lot of that without naming names for various authors or organizations. It seemed very closed to the outsider. If I wanted to come and be a part of an organization and sign a non-disclosure, then yes, we'll share everything that we have, but you won't be able to do anything with it. True. It's not the way it works around here. Even my employees here, I've found that any, any creations we create, everyone is an individual, and I treat people just like I treat my mushrooms. They're all, they all have a skill set. They're all creative. They're bringing things and ideas to the table, and that's part of the collective knowledge and teamwork that we have here, and I encourage it, and I don't want employees. I want career independent individuals, whether they're here or they leave, and nobody should own that or own them. And getting those kind of ideas out and together will, is also encouraging because people do hang on to their ideas. There's a risk of the idea being owned or taken. So we've created a safe haven here for creative individual thinkers who can add to that body of knowledge. In other words, our facility is, it's our new facility is 26 acres. We just moved in. 42,000 square feet of warehouse space. It's way too big for us. So what I'm trying to do is encourage students and other businesses to actually rent like an incubator facility, rent and move in with like-minded scientists, citizen scientists who want to start a business at the Mushroom Mountain campus, if you could call it that, where we could all cross-pollinate ideas and build that body of knowledge. Definitely a fan of safety and numbers. That's the biological fact. And if we all stick together and are able to release this information, I think in a very safe and clever way, then it can be public domain and still retain the rights and use without someone else taking it and blackmailing and hovering it, keeping it beyond arm's reach. If someone wanted to contact you to get involved, either because there's someone interested in this information who would consider coming to you, or if there's somebody in the area who doesn't know where you are, how would people find information? about you and your site and where is your site located we're at mushroommountain.com and that's all spelled out mushroom mountain and my wife olga we both own the business together so i don't want to take all the credit for any of this we're a team even with the book wouldn't have happened without her help and she runs the labs i run the labs and business and we're located in the upstate of south carolina so we're somewhere around Greenville, South Carolina, and we're very accessible, which I think makes us different than other mushroom farms and companies that actually answer the phone, <laughs> actually talk to people, and emails are sometimes the best, especially for complicated questions, and we not only do we do mushroom cultivation, part of the book is about micro-remediation, an introduction to that, and our facilities being set up for remediation experiments and the lab is the quality and grade that we can do those experiments safely and professionally. So we're getting a lot of requests from students and especially grad students who are interested in doing research or working with or for us. Workshops we have all the time. One of the things I don't do well or feel comfortable with is selling from the stage. So I won't even I won't even use this podcast to promote my company. I think just go out, go there, and if you like, which just browse around. But we're definitely a for-profit company because it helps fuel our research, and we don't do a lot of grants right now. 
although we are written into one for the North Carolina, the coal ash spill. So we're excited that we're on the short list to receive samples and do some remediation of that sort. So, yeah, I'd say accessibility, we are very high on the list for anyone who's interested, who has just a question on from plugs, the basic cultivation questions, all the way up to, I have coal ash in my backyard. What do I do? We're there for you. And I will say that you were in the middle of moving your lab, and yet you called me back in the middle of that process to ensure that we touched base to set up this interview. And I was thankful that you took the time to do that. I know what it's like to have phone calls or emails just hang out there and not to hear back from folks. I always ask people or warn them after a big conference, we're a small outfit here. And to have that level of, I don't like to work customer service, but to have that level of response where we could spend quality time answering things rather than just template answers, more face-to-face time, either email or on a phone, I think is nice. And it takes a little bit longer than normal. So when I, whenever I'm at a conference, there could be 200 to 500 people at one of my lectures. That's a lot of emails. And I know how you might feel when you, by the time you get home, you lecture for three days, you click on your inbox and then it says you've got a hundred new messages and all of them are pretty, pretty thick ones, pretty chewy. And I would sometimes I'll open and then read through them, scan, and then come back to them just a few days later. So I'm somewhat of an incubator. I'll read and think about those emails and then come back to them. But it, it usually, and, I, and this is the honesty I have with the groups, is when I'm lecturing, I said, if you do email, please email me the questions. But understand that it could take a week or two for me to go through all these thoroughly rather than just regurgitating up an answer for you that's not very thoughtful. I love helping. We try to thread our way out there. And we're in the spawn business, but I'm also in just the consultation and environmental solution business. So we'd rather not make money and help somebody figure a problem out first. And education is the only way you can do that is to educate first for someone to make an intelligent decision, whether it's spawn or not. We've turned away sales that I didn't feel like that they were, it was right for that person or the right area or their project needed some tweaking. And we have a lot of students contacting us, which are about projects. And that takes a lot of time. I mean, imagine these students sending you their whole outline for a micromediation project for their masters. And you're like, okay, here we go. Here I am. I'm going to have to spend some quality time. So what I'll generally do is email them and say, "I, I really can't answer this right now. I need to read through it. And and we're doing that as a free service, but I'm not sure how much longer we can do that, but I'm going to try to do it as long as I can. But I hope the books help that, you know, that it's an extension of us where that book is the voice inside their head where they can find, but there, there's always going to be some fine tuning and out there where the need for that stamp of approval is this experiment set up right, or am I watering my Kingsterferia patch enough? That's all good. I love what I do. It never gets old. It's comforting for me because of a lot of times that I feel that I'm out in the woods and the weeds alone doing what I do and spending the amount of time that I do with people. To have been in the middle of editing something that has a deadline that's two hours away, but then I speak with that person for an hour and a half because I make time for them. 
I hope that most of my listeners understand that it is that idea of if you contact me, I will get back with you, but I don't exactly know when. But yeah, I've had folks send me. We get that from magazines all the time. I got to have this done. And I'm looking at the, my list of things to do, and then I get behind. And it's there's that's the level of communication. You just have to. People don't know how busy you are or how busy I am. I will let everybody know listening that it's absolutely insane around here. There's a lot of things going on, and the skill sets needed to do some of those things are limited, but thankfully, I love it so much that I don't sleep a lot, but most of it's... I was trying to list my hobbies for Chelsea Green on the author questionnaire this morning, and I was like, I used to play guitar. I used to sing. I used to write poetry, and I hope to do those things again one day, but right now, I'm really... I think my brain is better off focusing on these things and solutions. That's what I prefer to do right now. The guitar is sitting there collecting dust, but it's speaking to me. Something that you said there, I reflect on it, it reminds me of something that my wife said to me, is that now that I've found my passion and I'm doing what I really want to do and care about, I'm never off. I'm always in that mode. My life and what I'm doing have come together and I never really stop. Is, yeah, is that something that you um, experience the, the, in what full, you're doing? The pedal, the gas pedals to the floor. And this is one of the problems is that you don't ever switch off. It's hard to switch off. And you're always thinking and calculating, thinking about things to make better, or you're worried that you're behind on this one thing. So you're just, now that we have a daughter, she was born in January. It's like there's there there's that off switch for you right there. <laughs> but, That'll make you snap, too. That's a reality check right there. It's great. Now that I I can do the research and work on the business and farm, I can have this outlet where I can just sit there and think about other things and daydream a little bit. Give Give that brain a rest. Very important. Very hard to do. I think about all those nights where I go and it's, honey, I'm going to go to, go to my office for an hour to make some notes so I'm ready for tomorrow. And it's four or five hours later. It's two or three o'clock in the morning because I've been sending emails. And then I sleep for four hours. I get up the next morning and then I have people who have responded to those messages going, why did you send this at three o'clock in the morning? That's and why, it's well uh, because that's when I, I was there I have and a got lot it of done. Early morning, weird hours, emails. And we, since we moved our farm, we, the, we live in eight, on eight acres, and our, originally our laboratory was here. We bought the house, and the back, the back room of the house that was all tiled. The, most of the room was the house was carpeted and everything, but the whole back of the house was there's one room back there big. It was all tiled, and it was separated by another door, and so that became our lab for five years. It was perfect, but it also was also unfortunately that outlet for a complete, you know lunacy is to have the lab right there in the house where you where it's always there it's always on there's always something to look at or grow or do there so like you email in those clients or listeners early in the morning i would never be off i would always i could get up in the middle of the night i would be thinking about what is that mushroom doing that i just cloned let me just go check it one more time <laughs> and and i it's like sleepwalking you just we never really quite down all the way. And I would go walking in and I would check on them because fungi grew really fast on plates. And I'm a big fan of learning about their behavior. 
because they, have, they grow so quickly. So I would check the plates like a couple times a day. And whenever I would go away from the, it would just absolutely kill me because I would have no idea like that rhythm of checking on my lab or the plates. Like I felt like I was getting out of sync with my mushroom cultures and like my twin was like separated or something. It was like, I swear I was like, Oh, it was just killing me. And then we moved our lab here this year to the new facility. And now it's completely like just the umbilicals like cut to a point where I have to have that separation and the sickness in the head with the business is that now I'm separated from my lab. So now I can just really do more back at the house at the wee hours of the morning. So I've just, I've filled that vacuum with more things that would just keep my, that switch on. So it is a degree of sickness in a good way. It's definitely a pathological mushroom cultivator. And I tell grow, I tell people in the audience, they said, do you sleep? I said, no, this is the final stage. <laughs> this is the last stage of being fully infected. This is what it looks like. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> one of one of the listeners called me one day and they they joked, you know, the, about how busy I was. And it's, well, how do you get something done? You ask a busy person. And I can say now that I'm doing this work full time, in addition to, to running the podcast and doing the research and writing all the material and everything that goes with it and managing a team of three contractors who are out doing more work to add to this body of knowledge for me. I'm also a father, a graduate student, a friend, and all these other roles that I fill. And I've never worked so hard in my life as now that I work right. for myself. Yeah, I think we quit <laughs> our day jobs years ago, and it was scary. And But I think we knew that we were going to be – we pushed the boat away from shore and just let it take us. And now we're steering and paddling, so we're in control. The relationships definitely are going to take a hit. And I wish I could communicate more with my family, more with my friends who all have those day jobs. So when they check in at 8 a.m. and they clock out at, I, there's sometimes there's that some people say, man, it's nice just to be able to clock out and just do whatever you want. But I'm more of, I like feeling in control of my destiny. And it does come as a price because you do work an enormous amount of hours. You really do live the business. You live... 24-7, and it becomes a challenge to integrate back into, like, normal friendships and things. A lot of our friends, we we have a very hard time going out to just for dinners or drop-ins or anything that our circle of friends are organic farmers, and they're scientists, and they're all in this circle, and uh, it's very difficult given our schedule, too, with the lectures, and as a farmer, you're also committed to most of the conferences being when? On the weekends, <laughs> right? Farmer's markets every Saturday. And so there goes, you it feels strange to take off during the week because there's so much work to do. But guess what? All the weekends, the free time is consumed by things that are business related. And when I go to conferences and I'm there for two to three days and I'm out in Colorado or Washington, D.C. or wherever I'm at, I tell people, I said, this is a vacation. It I said, I will get more done, whether it's writing or emails or research or anything like that. I will get more done coming to the conference, spending a lot of time with attendees, which I absolutely love, and then going back to the hotel and just sitting there and just 
very willingly just catching up on some things with no zero distractions, especially on the planes. That's those are good. Those are dead times. And I thank you for going down this direction of conversation of what it's like to live a passion and live a business like this, because until I did it, I didn't know. I didn't understand it. And it's, I have a pair of friends who run a local business. So they're small business owners doing what they can. And it's in those conversations together, all the things that people who, who haven't done this or don't do it don't understand what it's like to have something that you love so much that you put so much time and energy into it. And though there is all that, those hours spent involved in this, I can't imagine doing anything else now or going back to work for a company that is a nine to five kind of arrangement. It's impossible. I don't think you'd survive. I don't think that you'd, it might be a severe act of depression to do something like that. And to lose the control and to lose the part of the passion. And that's what I want to make sure the listeners that I won awards for entrepreneurship at Clemson and I speak at business schools and students to inspire them. How I got started, how I built Mushroom Mountain from the ground up and it took a lot of time and to not take the quick, easy route and don't be a one trick pony. Because if that horse breaks its leg, I was like, we all know what happens to the horse in the race that breaks its leg. <laughs> so diversify and don't be afraid to take chances, to take calculated risks. I'm not a gambler. I really look at things and decide whether or not it's going to be worth it to me ethically and economically, but we're always putting the environment first. That's like the number one reason why we would develop a product or try to do something or invest time or money into it. Anyone listening who wants to start a mushroom farm or business or looking at that middle section of that book you have, it's like a buffet, right? Where you can, once you get past the first section, you can, there's so many things and ideas that I didn't even have time to complete. And that's one of the reasons I wrote it is because I really want people to take that knowledge in the first section, go to that middle buffet section and just create new things. So it's a chance for other entrepreneurs or other ones who want to build a passion, another level of fungal ingenuity, the answers could be there. It could be the answer inside another reader who can then come out and lecture and publish their own book. That's how we get things done around here. So yeah, definitely inspiring to see those students and with a little bit of sense of direction, more than just coming out of school and working nine to five jobs or working on things that to me don't matter <laughs> or working for the wrong companies. We don't want our talent to go to companies that aren't doing good things for the planet. Sorry, you don't edit that out, please. No, I'll leave that in there. I find that I need to challenge myself more to not be so middle of the road sometimes in order to push those limits. I know that I could do more by paying people less, but I'd rather pay people, even though they're not working for me full time, but just on this, these independent projects. Yeah, I might be able to get more out of paying somebody minimum wage, but I'd rather pay them a lot more than that so that they're invested in this work and care about it and have the opportunity to do the things that they want to do. Yeah, we're in that situation now where we, we're a brand new facility, very expensive equipment, and it all needs to be paid off. And the students that I'm getting are extremely valuable, and I don't want them to go anywhere. So I say, listen, you're getting paid this wage. I said, I understand 
And I said, you don't have to tell me that it is a low wage for a college graduate. I said, it's extremely low. I said, but that's what that position pays for. It's a production wage. I said, but full disclosure is telling an employee, so listen, let's get the production up and then we'll hire somebody to do that. Then you come move in with me to the lab and now you're exercising your skill and degree and can help me run the production side of the business. And it's including them into the business format where they understand what it really takes to make that sacrifice, at least in the beginning, whereas we took the brunt of the sacrifice over the past 15 years, up and down and counting coins, a lot of adjustment here, rolling quarters. And when you put all your chips on one thing, there will be ups and downs. And I think smoothing out those valleys and making sure they have some reserve, I think that's the comforting when you really can start to expand and take care of employees, add layers, and that's all happening now. And I'm trying to develop a team, a dream team of what I call students of different mindsets from microbiology to chemistry. We're looking at a hydrogeologist, which will help with our remediation. These are things that I don't want to say I don't want to know about them, but I really don't need to. If we have someone on staff, we can all put our heads together and problem solve once a week what projects we're working on, and then that particular person can run their own division. Don't be afraid to hire people smarter than you. Just take really good care of them. (laughs) Pay them not to talk. No, I'm just kidding. But you'll get more done. I think any owner or entrepreneur who's scared of sharing information with their employees is making a grave mistake. And I know there's company trade secrets, and trust me, we, we have those with our employees, but I would think that we're extremely fair compared to companies that I've worked for when I was much younger. I refused to fall into that pattern of, of re-abuse. <laughs> so just look into the future. It's, uh, if we can get a little dream team of students and workers, we can. I'm hoping that we'll have those skill sets to solve anything that comes our way. You just outlined something that I've been working through myself about putting together my kind of team and that it's the three people I have working for me independently right now wanting to be able to hire them full time sometime in the not too distant future because one of them is a journalist by training. One of them is a videographer. One of them is a very skilled photographer, but who's also a maker and a builder. And thinking about all the projects and things that we could then build and create designs and diagrams for and build sheets that could then be released as part of this ongoing open sourcing of these ideas and also being able to document all this incredible work that other people are doing as a permaculture news team. I don't know what of that I will leave in, but I want to thank you, Trad, for where the conversation has gone, because it feels like the things that I'm doing don't seem so crazy. The mushroom could be your off switch that you need. Oh, I teach everywhere. Everyone's got different ideas at gardening events, soil and tree conferences. I said, there's always a place for mushrooms or fungi somewhere in natural systems, no matter what you do. This book of ideas is designed to help you make decisions that will create better opportunities for your gardens and businesses. And that's what it's all about. So I really appreciate you having me on. I love that what we've talked about, the entrepreneurship and the business, the fungi, and uh, look forward to many conversations in the future. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners before we draw this conversation to a close? As a mushroom cultivator, you're never an expert. And I hope 
to keep exploring, dig deeper, and all these solutions, uh, a lot of the environmental solutions, especially environmental pollutants, the cures or the answers, uh, the solutions could be in this manual, and it's up to us as a in our individual towns and cities and regions, bioregions, to take and build upon this knowledge. But definitely act. Don't wait. Start small-scale projects. Don't be afraid to do that and build upon them. It's a collective knowledge, so find someone, partner up. If you feel like you're alone, reach out and see if you can find someone to partner up on. And if you need funding, don't be afraid to go for that. We've been written in on some grants and as consultants to give anyone that kind of professional backbone for an experiment in your area. And collectively, there's way more environmental problems as individual homeowners that are almost unknown or unheard of as compared to some of the larger spills that are on TV and the news. So I think as homeowners and landowners with the most private property in the United States, if we can clean up some of those areas, that would be my biggest wish is that this book serves everybody extremely well in that respect. That was Trad Cotter. As you can hear in the interview, and like I've mentioned appreciating in other reviews, he does this work for a living. This is his passion. He's not a sage on the stage, but a guide on the side living this and encouraging others to do the same. Of all the books I've encountered on mushrooms, and I've looked at quite a few by names, Trads is the most functional and useful book on mushroom cultivation, education, and the science of it all that I've encountered. Just as I recommend The One Straw Revolution as the first book to read when starting down a permaculture path, Organic Mushroom Farming and Mice Remediation is the book that I point people to who want to get started with learning about mushrooms. The book is divided into four sections. Part 1, The Fundamentals of Mushroom Cultivation, contains what you need to know about mushrooms and how to grow them. Part 2, Mushrooms for Life, Innovative Applications and Projects Using Fungi, covers composting with mushrooms, urban growing, off-the-grid growing, mushroom products, mushroom-infused adult beverages, mushroom marketing, and fungi in the classroom. Part 3, Advanced Techniques and Research, gives you what you need to know to get started building your own lab, start cultures and spawn generation, store your cultures, advanced cultivation and research strategies, a research update on morale cultivation, and an introduction to mice remediation. Part 4, Meet the Cultivated Mushrooms. This is a listing of 24 mushroom genuses with notes on the difficulty of raising them, general description and ecology, fruit body development, common strains and ideal fruiting conditions, wild spawn expansion techniques, lab isolation and spawn cultures, preferred fruiting substrates, outdoor cultivation notes, indoor cultivation notes, and also information on harvesting, storing, marketing, the nutritional value and medicinal uses, and uses in mice remediation. Did I say that this book was packed with information? It is. Yet all of that, as much as it sounds like, is easy to read, indexed, and includes just about everything I could ask for in a guide for a home grower, a teacher in the classroom, or someone wanting to get involved in commercial production. It's that good, and worth adding to your library if you have an interest in mushrooms. And as for me, we can create a better world by design using permaculture, and mushrooms are one of the elements, strategies, and mice remediation as a technique that we should include in our toolbox. So pick up a copy of Trad's book, learn about mushrooms, and the difference that they can make in your work. Until the next time, join me in making a difference by taking care of the earth, yourself, and each other.